0: 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'll read through verse 7. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's give attention to it. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray and ask for his help indeed as we consider these verses together in the preaching of it this morning. Father, as we approach this portion of your word and consider the subject matter that is before us, we ask and plead for that which you've promised us. That your spirit would attend to all that is said and heard. That our ears would be receptive to these things. That our hearts would be ready to receive them. None of this is natural for us. We must have your spirit. So we pray that you would grant him to us. Even now we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. The story is told of a justice of the peace in a small New England town who was called upon to perform his first marriage ceremony. After he had the knot, that is to say, pronounced them husband and wife, after he had the knot securely tied, the young couple continued to stand before him as if expecting some further comments, further right from him. It was here that the justice stammered, Out in a brave attempt to round off the ceremony with something of a religious turn, he said, there, there, it's all over. Go and sin no more. (laughs) I confess that I struggled with finding some appropriate application to the sermon. And God willing, the levity of it will help us work into what is indeed a very serious subject. I know it's humorous if it's not altogether awkward, uh, ending to a marriage ceremony. I, for one, am glad, and in God's providence, the two people that I first met the first wedding I ever did in my life, they're here today, and I am, for one, am glad I did not freeze up when I performed my first wedding and said something really silly or utterly ridiculous. But, in a strange kind of way, there is a sense in which this odd illustration fits the point of the passage sexual sin is answered by Paul with the admonition to get married. It is there that the temptation to sin is handled and God willing eradicated. Perhaps you're here today. You might be unmarried, never been married. You're single. You might think, well, what does this have to do with me? Why should I even be here this morning? Well, first you're here to worship God and to hear from him as his word is proclaimed and hopeful that your pastor will at least apply some of this to your life in some way. And I'm going to. I'd urge you to listen carefully. I recognize that 95% of what I'm about to say through the lens of, through the words that Paul says here in this chapter are designed for the married in our room. But this is not to say that it doesn't have anything to say to you singles or those of you who might think marriage is a long way off if it ever comes at all. So I'd urge you to listen carefully because there is a lesson for the unmarried as much as there is for the married knowing that the lesson here in this text is aimed at married people, husbands, and wives. It is here that the Apostle Paul begins to give marital counsel. And I can tell you candidly, as one who has done enough marital counseling in my life, that if it's not for this chapter, and if people would only heed some of the things that are said here, probably most of the marital counseling would end. And so Paul gives some. He offers here, in a rather pointed and exacting way, counsel to married people. But it's offered as well to safeguard the purity of the living object, that living object lesson of Christ and his church. Let me say that again. You might think, as a married person, uh, that it doesn't really matter These subjects, these issues, the things that Paul will address in this entirety of this chapter, don't have any real bearing on eternity. But they do. God in His wisdom has provided marriage. It was provided before the fall. Anticipating that beautiful marriage that exists between Christ and the church. Your marriage, does it reflect that? Does it reflect it in its privacy, in its privacy? Does it reflect it in its public notice in nature? For it must. It must do that. The context of this chapter might seem to be a direct divorce from that which, no pun intended, a direct divorce... Away from uh, the things that he has said in verse, in chapter six. But it really isn't. In the Spirit's wisdom, he uses an event that occurred prior to Paul writing the words of chapter seven to uh, hasten on and deal with the strong admonition that's given in chapter six, verse 18, when he says, by command, to flee from sexual immorality. Paul's addressing now a question, really, more to the point, a statement being held by some in Corinth as to the matters that Paul has addressed to them in chapter 6, apparently addressed to them earlier in a letter that we do not have at this point ever lost completely. He's addressing... The matters of marital relation. The matters that exist within the bonds of marriage and only should only exist there. This is where he starts his counsel to married people. And so I want to show you this morning with God's help, and I am very dependent on it. More sensitive to it than I can remember, actually. I want to show you the Apostles' correction and counsel pertaining to marriage, specifically the marital relation, the marital relations owed to one another. I want to show you, with God's help, the Apostles' correction and counsel pertaining to marriage, specifically that marital relationship, that marital relation, and I'm using my words very judiciously here because I know what we have in this room. These marital relations that are owed, owed to one another. Two points as we consider these seven verses. First, we will take up and consider the apostles' correction. And then we will consider the apostles' counsel. His correction, there's a problem. He needs to correct it. And then, quick on the heels of that correction, he offers counsel in the matter of marital relationship marital relations. First, the correction that the apostle gives. He's responding uh, to the church. He begins this section dealing with marital matters by responding to a previous communication offered by them. If you turn back to chapter 5 and verse 9, you note there when he says, I wrote to to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That letter, what letter? We don't know. We don't know what letter. In some sense, the letter we are considering now, this letter we call 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and the one that we might consider later on, 2 Corinthians, is really 3 Corinthians. That first letter the one that's been lost to us. But obviously, he approaches the matter of sexual immorality because they are responding to it. And he says that when he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, he has it in hand. Apparently, Paul has addressed these things, and he wants to respond. He's going to respond. He's going to give them more than they probably bargained for. But be that as it may, he's going to respond nonetheless. Paul is being pastoral here. Like most pastors, I suspect, in churches, they want to answer every possible question that everybody can offer. And, and, and unfortunately, they generally can't answer every question that is offered. But they sure should, or try, at least make an effort Not every question is critical that comes to the church. Certainly the Corinthians asked other things. We don't know what those are necessarily. But for the bulk of the letter, from here on out, Paul will be addressing some of these matters. And he seeks to do this here. Because they ask, or really to the point, they state, they state, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If the danger, Paul, is so significant, if the danger of sexual immorality is so great, perhaps it would be better to just avoid it entirely. This is what they're thinking. They're thinking maybe if this is such a serious situation in which... It brings damage and shame to the marriage, to the individuals, to the church, to Christ. The, the, The consequences are so great, maybe it would just be better to avoid it in every conceivable possibility, including within the bonds of marriage. This is the issue that Paul wants to respond to. The interpretive question that's before us, of course, is is these words that Paul opens this chapter with, are these words words that Paul wrote or are these words that the Corinthians wrote that he is now responding to? And I take it, as most commentators do, as a statement made by the church. Two issues are before us then in this passage. Jumping down to the very end of the text, he brings up two things in relationship to the statement that they have just made. It's better that we don't do any of these things. We're all going to remain celibate. We're going to be married and not engage in the marital relation. We're going to stay single, therefore, and remain celibates. Paul addresses this at the very end of his argument in verse 7, when he says that celibacy is a gift from God. Isn't that what he says there in verse 7? I wish that all were as myself am. It has been the uh, tradition of the church. It's been the long-standing view of the church that the Apostle Paul was never married. That is not my view. This may come as a surprise to you, but it is very likely he was in fact married at one time, and his wife either died or there was a divorce. Whatever the case may be and whatever your position may be on that point, we know for a fact, when he penned these words here in this particular point of his letter, he is as he desires others to be. He is a single man. He is celibate. He is not engaged in the normal relations that would have occurred in marriage, of course, being not married. But notice how he qualifies it. It's a gift. He's not given to matters pertaining to the issues of which they are writing. If you really think that you can avoid this situation, then you have to have the gift that God grants. And God does, in fact, grant the gift of celibacy, or put a different way, singleness to some in the church. Some people never marry. And they have no desire to marry. And they are not given over to the matters of which Paul addresses in this chapter. And I will tell you, that is not the normal way. Celibacy is a gift. The gift of singleness, as it has been termed, is indeed a gift of the Spirit of God. And how can you know that you have it? Some of you here this morning are single. Some of you are very single and not even remotely close to the idea of marriage. How do you know? Well, you have no desire for it to begin with, period. God has granted to you and he's removed from you by his spirit all of the trappings and matters pertaining to it. But there's another gift the one that the majority of you represent in this room. How do I know? Because you're married. That's why I know you received that gift. They're both gifts. They're good gifts. We ought never in the church to look down upon a single person who's been given the gift of singleness by the God of heaven or push them in a direction that they ought not be pushed because God isn't pushing them there. But for most of us, the gift is marriage. That is the usual way in which God builds his church and evangelizes his church and brings to his church a godly seed. Paul talks about that as well. Marriage is a gift from God. How do you know you have it? Well, I don't know. How smart do you have to be? Are you married? You have it. We believe in the providence of God. We believe in his sovereignty. And if you're married this morning, you are you have the gift of marriage. Now, you may not be looking at your marriage as a gift. You ought to. It's a gift for at least one reason, but there are many others. But you have it. God is giving it has given it to you. Paul shifts his discussion. The very opening verse of the chapter this verse signals for him a shift, a shift to matters pertaining to marriage, those that have received the gift of marriage. They're not like he is. But to those who have been married, who have been received that gift of God, and he shifts his discussion to that context and a context that he addresses within the grounds, in the bonds, in the subject and category of sexual immorality. In this shift, he wants to correct some bad theology, and it's bad, real bad theology. The theology is given to us in the statement that is made by the Corinthian church. What is this error, this wrong theology that they're advancing? Well, if sexual immorality immorality is so terrible, uh, I should avoid being married, although I don't have the gift of celibacy or singleness. Or if I'm married, I should avoid it altogether anyway. In either case, I should avoid it, period. This typical error that was rampant in the church of Corinth and is often rampant today is that which I have coined as an overcorrection to the problem. Now, look, this is what we usually do. It is human nature to overcorrect. We're told that something is wrong. We're told that we shouldn't do something, and so what do we do? We overcorrect. This is what the Corinthians are doing. They overcorrect the matter that was previously written to them, and they go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, and they say, okay, fine, if sexual immorality is so bad, we ought not have sexual relations Period. No matter what the context. That is gross overcorrection. The problem they're advancing is a more fancy word. The problem they're advancing is asceticism. Now you might think, okay, great, thank you for those words. I don't know what you mean. Well, it's my job to tell you what it means, I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm not going to make you whip out your phone and look it up quickly. What is asceticism? Well, it is the practice, according to one source, the practice of strict self denial as a measure of personal and especially spiritual discipline. They think somehow they are more godly or more holy if they just avoid the matter altogether, overcorrecting into an area that, that Paul has never said. Apparently, some, as one commentator puts it, apparently, some were teaching that celibacy, even within marriage, was necessary to avoid the sin of sexual immorality. Necessary and, in fact, spiritual. We're more holy because we don't do that. A classic case of overcorrection. Paul wants to bring balance to the issue, and he does that by way of correction and instruction. The answer regarding the temptation to sexual immorality is given to us, he says so as much in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, so we know the subject. He says each man should have his own wife, and each one wife her own husband. This is, Solution isn't to avoid it entirely, whether married or otherwise. If you're not married and you are tempted in this direction, the solution, Paul says, is rather plain. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Get married! You don't have the gift of continency. You don't have the gift of celibacy. You don't have the gift of singleness. You need to get married. Because of sexual temptation... He prescribes, as it were, as a doctor might prescribe medicine. He prescribes this solution, and that is to get married. Is within the bonds of marriage that sexual relations are holy and undefiled. They're not immoral, you Corinthian people who are confused and ascetic and overcorrecting. Within the bonds of marriage, this relation, this these relations that exist within the bonds of marriage, is holy. They are not defiled by sin. If the temptation to sin in this realm is great, marriage is the solution. If you cannot exercise self-control, asceticism will not solve the problem. Marriage will, or at least it should. The term Paul employs in verse 2 of chapter 7 is a general one. When he says there, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, that term that he employs there is not speaking specifically of the act itself, (coughs) but it is speaking of the broad category of all sexual sin. It includes, but is not limited to, pornography. As an aside... Not, it's not on my notes. Parents, do you know what your children are doing on their computers and their phones? As an aside. The danger of pornography in the church is real. And you are a fool if you think your children have not been exposed to it in some way. Are you monitoring what they look at? On their, you shouldn't allow your children to have computers in their bedrooms by themselves. That's my pastoral counsel and advice. It's dangerous. It is everywhere. Pornography. Frequenting houses of ill repute, as it's been coined. Corinth was full of them. And, of course... Matters pertaining to self-gratification and out and out acts of sex, sexual acts outside the bonds of marriage. This is what this term covers, a very wide-ranging category. If you are tempted in these areas, if you are not married, asceticism is not going to be the solution. Marriage is. Now, you might be thinking, well, pastor, I'm single and I struggle The Lord's been kind to me. He's given me a degree of self-control, but I sure like to be married. You might think, well, what is this for me? How does this help me? The Lord hasn't been pleased at this point in time to give me a spouse, at least not that I'm aware of. And you'll be aware of it when he's ready. I know when I met my wife, I knew she she was the one. I don't know how I knew. I just did. You'll know. What should you do? Be patient. Be patient. Wait on God and His timing. Pray a lot for a greater measure of the Spirit. Lean on Him for self control. Plead for the help you need. It's obvious you don't have the gift of singleness, you want to be married. Plead for his help. Paul here is more concerned, of course, with the idea that even within the bonds of marriage, this ascetic thing has taken over the church and is causing a great deal of heartache within marriages. Paul's general correction to the wrong-headed thinking of the Corinthians is get married. It's not asceticism. It's not try harder and pull yourself up and you'll you'll be okay. If you don't have the gift of singleness, then you need to get married. And So he corrects the problem immediately. He doesn't waste a whole lot of ink to get right to the heart of the issue, but he's not done, is he? He's corrected the wrong view and the overcorrection of this view that the Corinthians hold. He goes on to give now in relationship to this matter, some marital counsel. Indeed, they are commands. I know that may shock you, and some of you are going to be a little stunned and may even bristle. I didn't write it. I warn you, there, there, there are going to be things said in the next few minutes that you may not like. Paul gives some commands in relationship to the marriage. All within the context of the marriage bed. So what is this counsel? Well, first the issue. The issue really begins in verse 3 of the passage. Let's first, decide, let's first establish what it isn't. If you don't know your Bible... You may read the words of 1 Corinthians 7, especially in verses 3 and 4, and you might think something that you shouldn't think. What it isn't, the apostle is not saying everything that could be said about marriage here. This is not an exhaustive examination of marriage from beginning to end, it's just not his purpose. Elsewhere, he does say other things, but we must, be kept, we must keep firmly in our minds as we move to the next three verses that there is one main point, and only one. What is it? Well, that point is simply this. Marriage is the only place in which sexual temptation can be alleviated and through the sexual duties mutually owed to one another. In verse 3, he highlights the, the, the need to be married. The husband should give to his wife. Or I'm sorry, verse 2, but because of the temptation, the sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So much for our culture. He says here, the only place in which this matter can be alleviated is within the bonds of marriage, period. In other words, Paul is not arguing here that there is equality of roles in every situation in the marriage. Notice how he puts it there in verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her body. Remember what the subject is. But you know, the husband doesn't have a right to his either. That's simply to say that husbands, your wife has a right to your body. She has authority over you in this area, and you husbands have authority over your wife in this area. Paul's not saying everything there is to say about marriage. He is speaking specifically and directly within the realm of one specific issue. And in this circumstances, he plainly says that there is an equality in the marital relations, and that's why he phrases it the way he does. Now, why does he say this? What are the reasons? Well, first, there's mutual authority. That may seem like a rather weird way to put it. Authority usually implies somebody who has more God-given right to determine or lead or direct. And in the marriage, that is true and given to the husband in almost every case except this one. There is a mutual authority that may seem strange to say, but it is precisely what he says. In this circumstance, the husband has authority over the body of the wife and the wife over the husband. That is to say that there is, there is an indebtedness toward one another. It's a mutual thing. It is not a dominance thing. And Paul says, in this case, there should never be any defrauding of the marital relations that are legitimately owed to one another. It's precisely what he gets at in verse 5 when he says, do not deprive one another. In your Bible, there might be a comma there. In either case, the expression that he offers in verse 5 is a command. This is not a suggestion within marriage. Husbands, wives, you are commanded to give to one another what is owed each other. It's right there. No ambiguity, no confusion, no yabuts. Yeah buts. It's there. Paul commands it that we ought not defraud it because I don't own myself, my wife does. And she doesn't own herself, I do. It is mutual. But there are some important implications here in light of it. I could hear them in my head as I'm writing the outline yesterday, finishing it up, thinking to myself, all the yeah buts that are usually sitting in the pews, all the yeah butters. Or as I like to put it, you know, the pulpit's about seven feet above contradiction. I I recognize the pastoral dilemmas that are created from this command that Paul gives, but we must start with the authority of the word of God. It says it. We have to work from there. What are some of those? Well, Paul says there's a statement of mutual obligation. That is, the husband and wife have a mutual obligation to give to the other marital relations. It is a debt. It must be paid. That is without question. But what must be said at the same time is that there's no hint here, not even close, of dominance. The idea that it's been filtered through the church, and I don't even know where it began. I've heard it growing up. Maybe you've heard it. That God created the marital relationship to protect the man. Um, Wrong. Paul says it's mutual. There's no dominance here. There's no idea that it this that this 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 gift of God marriage and all that comes from it was designed just for the man. No, no. It was designed for the couple. It is a mutual obligation, a mutual duty, a mutual responsibility. The male of the species does not have the market cornered on sexual sin. The point is that is for the mutual benefit of the marriage itself. But also by implication. There must be wisdom. I could see some husbands completely abusing the words of the Apostle Paul. I could see some wives completely abusing the words of the Apostle Paul and demanding something because, after all, you know, the pastor said, "You don't. I, I own your body. And I can see it wrong-headed people making those comments. There needs to be wisdom when it comes to this. What do I mean? Well, it is human nature, of course, to abuse the privileges God gives to His people. Married couples, especially Christians, should not abuse it. You shouldn't abuse the statement that Paul says that not deprive one another. Paul is speaking normatively about the marriage. Normally, this is what it looks like. Normally, this is the picture of a marriage that's healthy. Normally, these are the circumstances in which it occurs. Normally, he is speaking in normative terms. That is to say that as the normal routine of the marriage is to have these relations between husband and wife. Put a different way, it's normal that sexual deprivation is not allowed. Normally, however. That does not mean you have the license to demand it whenever you want. That's not what Paul says here. Men, you cannot use this passage to demand from your wife what he just says here. There are times in which you, men or wives, there may be a number of circumstances in which you, Need to be mindful of your spouse, and you don't, and you aren't. Just because you have the right doesn't mean you have to exercise it. There are plenty of times in which this life can be very hard. Your spouse comes home from an extremely long day, and they're flat out exhausted, or weary, or worn down by who knows what in this world. Be wise. Serve one another. Be understanding. Remember, Paul says you do not own your body, your spouse does. On the other hand, and I've seen this too many times, this does not mean that you married people are allowed to weaponize this responsibility. Now, I've seen it with couples in the church, not necessarily here, where a spouse uses this issue as leverage against their spouse. Friends, that is a heinous sin. cannot weaponize the marital relations with each other. Many marital problems are fleshed out right here in this area. Maybe that's why Paul started with this subject. I don't know. When you ignore the command of Paul unnecessarily withholding it from your spouse, you are violating the principle offered and in direct violation of the normative point being made. To weaponize the marital duties is to act selfishly and to forget that you do not have a right over your body in this area. Now, my notes say see quote sheet, except it's downstairs in my study, so apparently I'm not supposed to read it to you. God's providence. In other words, what I'm simply suggesting to you is that Paul is highlighting the normative view of marriage. This is what it looks like normally. Be wise, be sensitive, be discerning. Don't weaponize this against your spouse because you're mad at them for something. Solve the problem. But Paul does give an exception, of course, just like Paul. Here's the normative way of living, but, oh, wait, except... Got this one exception for you. There may be a time in which this is not what it looks like in the marriage. He gives it there in verse five. Paul makes a concession. That's verse six. I take verse six to go with the statements that he makes in verse five. He makes a concession about the normative aspects of the of his marital counsel that he's just given. But it's specific, isn't it? In other words, he says to the church at Corinth, he says to you this morning, normally, this is what I've already said is the way it should look, normally. But there are times, and in this case, time, a time, in which it won't look that way. He gives the requirements, the very exacting statements there in verse 5 when he says, do not deprive one another. Except perhaps, by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Curious that those of you who weaponize these things, is that why? Well, you're already violating it anyway, but OK, I digress. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's an agreement first. It's mutual. Just as in the normative process, it's mutual. It's mutual here. There's an agreement. The decision to abstain is made together as husband and wife. It is not arbitrary or made unilaterally. Husbands, you do not have the right to deprive your wife if she does not agree. And vice versa. There's no agreement. Are you crazy for four weeks? No. Okay, there has to be an agreement. It's made together, assuming, of course, conversation, a working out of the issue, a discussion, an agreement made together mutually with a time frame in view. Paul tells us why the time frame is there. It should be specific, and my counsel to you as a congregation would be that if you do do this, if you do exercise this exception, which is not normative, it's an exception that you establish a time frame. How long are we going to deprive one another that we've agreed to do? It is a limited period, of course. Paul does not give the time limits, wisely. That's going to look different for every married couple in this room. But it would be part of that agreement. But there's also a limit to the reason. So there's an agreement, it's mutual, there's a specified period of time, and there's a purpose. A specific one. Paul gives it here, and the ESV translation gives it for the purpose of prayer. The the New King James adds that word fasting. And in either case, the purpose is for godliness. That is to say that the purpose is greater. It transcends that great purpose and privilege that we are given as a gift of God in marriage. It's beyond that even. That we as a couple might seek God's face as we might as we were fasting from food for some particular reason. Maybe we have a major life decision to make. Maybe we need to change jobs. Maybe it's we're going to move. Maybe it's some financial matter. It could be any host of reasons, but the reason is always for godliness, not just for the purpose of doing it. It's not asceticism. It is that we might seek the will of God. And whatever it is, that throws a lot of things off the table, doesn't it? You can't do this agreement just because. Paul says there's a higher reason, even greater than that gift that God gave to the married couple, in which you may, for a season, refrain. That you might seek the will of God in some matter that's germane to you your, as a couple and to your home. But it must end. It must end. Paul says that. After doing all of these things, there at the end of verse 5, but then come together again. Why? Why? Because it's not natural, it's not normative to be separated in this way. And if you do and persist, you leave yourself open to the efforts of the evil one. There's an end to it. The time of agreement must come to an end because if it doesn't, due to a lack of self control, it will indeed give room to Satan. Two issues one is normative. I don't think I've said anything that you didn't already know, frankly. Maybe a few things. One's an exception. You want to avoid sexual immorality? Get married. It's not a blanket guarantee, but it certainly goes a long way. Because it's there and only there that it's holy and good. It's there and only there that it's owed mutually to each other. And in those rare exceptions in which it doesn't occur, it is agreed upon for a specific purpose with a specific time that you might seek the will of God. To the married people, I said I was going to try to tie this together for everyone in the room, as challenging as this is. It's probably also one of the shortest sermons I've ever preached here. Maybe because of the topic, I don't know. That could be driving that point. But anyway, married people. The authority exercise in this passage is in the realm of marital relations. Husbands, you submit to your wives in this area. What? Paul says, oh, the wife submits to me. Not in this area. Wives, you submit to your husband. It's mutual. It's an obligation that you owe to one another. It is important to remember that Paul preached, prefaced this entire discussion with an answer to the wrong statement by saying, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, God gives and has given to the married couple a great gift. Which produces many great benefits. What are some of those? Well, just two, maybe three. That mutual satisfaction, the closest kind of intimacy that can be enjoyed by two people, godly offspring. It is a debt you owe as a married couple. It is one of the means, the main means, that God protects the sanctity of marriage and the command to flee sexual immorality. But it's mutual. What about the unmarried people? What does this have to do with you? This is always the challenge of preaching these kinds of texts and leave you all behind and make some excuse why I didn't address you because, well, the passage wasn't about you. What about the unmarried people? What does this have to do with you? You might think, well, I'm left out of this passage. It has nothing to do with me. Well, explicitly that's true. But implicitly, implicitly, no, not at all. Why do I say that? Because who knows what circumstances await you in the future? I don't know that. You don't know that. Some of you desire marriage. Therefore, this counsel is good for you to get through your head right now before you go into a marriage. Perhaps marriage is not on your radar Perhaps you have the gift of signal list, but you do have friends, and some of them are married. There may be occasion for you to give wise and godly counsel to a hurting friend in this area. And look, I've heard the stories, so they're out there. Therefore, this does apply to you. Use these words carefully and plainly as a soothing ointment to those who may be struggling in this area. You'd be surprised how many marriages struggle because of this one subject. You may be in a position, by God's grace, to minister to them, to show them the plain teaching of the Bible. How about everybody? Children who might be married someday, people who will never be married someday, those who are married... Well, these words are Christ's words. Paul wrote them, yes, but they're his. They belong to him. He penned them. They are given by a servant of Christ to to the sheep of his pasture. They are given so that his people would not fall prey to sexual sin. They are given so that the living model of Christ and his church Remains pure and undefiled before a watching world. This is the first of Paul's counsel. Maybe it's there because he sees it as the most important of counsel. I don't know. But it is the first thing he says to the married in the room you have a debt to your spouse. It's a mutual thing. Submit to one another. Do it in the bonds of marriage only. It's the only place it can happen. To the single, you wait patiently for the God's timing to bring you a spouse if that's your desire. But to everyone, we see, don't we, how important it is to maintain the sanctity of marriage because of what it represents it represents that relationship that Jesus Christ has to you and me. We are a picture of that union that Christ has with his bride, you and me, the very bride of Christ. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and though we confess that there are places in which it is also hard even to read, but certainly to preach. We pray that we would learn from these things. We would flee immorality in every form, that our marriages would be purified. They would express that real true picture of Christ and his people. We pray that you'd help us as we continue on into this chapter that we would see indeed that you, the God of heaven, love marriage. You love it. You gave it to us. What a gift. May we use it for your glory, we pray, for Christ's sake.